All right, where, where are all the kids at this morning? All right, so today, kids, we're, we're starting uh, our, our, our four weeks on Advent. Today's the first day of Advent. Who can tell me what Advent is about? What do you think, Zeke? It's for Christmas. All right, what does it have to do with Christmas? Christmas is today Christmas? No. No. Counting down to Christmas. Why do we count down for Christmas? What do you think, Zaley? Yeah. Right. So how many more days till Christmas? 25. 24, yeah, because like we don't want to count Christmas because that's Christmas. So it's all about us getting more and more and more excited for Christmas, right? So why is that a, why is that a church thing? What do you think, Luke? It's about Jesus' birth. So we're waiting for Christmas. Has anybody, did, did people wait for Jesus' birth? Right? Like in, in the Old Testament, God's people waited a really long time for Jesus to be born. How long do you think they waited? Like 50 years. Like 50 years. I think it's more or less than 50 years? More. There was one point in the Old Testament where God's people went 400 years without God saying anything to them about Jesus being born. Some people waited hundreds and 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 hundreds of years for Jesus to be born. So who can tell me a time where you guys waited for something? Where you had to wait for something? What do you think, Landon? Waiting for Christmas, right? So right now, we've got to wait 24 days. And then after Christmas, we're going to have to wait 364 days. What about you, Soph? Waiting for your birthday. Zeke? School? Is that what he said? All right. <laughs> the point is that whenever we're waiting for something, it seems even Longer, and I want to. I want to show you guys that this morning. I'm going to pull out my phone so I can time something. Kids, I want all of you to close your eyes, and then we're just going to wait until I tell you to stop. All right, stop. Okay, how many minutes do you think that was? What do you think, Levi? Five minutes. What do you think, Landon? How many? Not even one. What do you think, Zaley? 
about one. What do you think, Ramona? Two? Johnny? What? 50 seconds. Sophie? One or two? Ben? 60. What about you, Jaron? A minute. Luke? A minute. It was actually 30 seconds. But when we're waiting, it feels a lot longer. And so kids, this Christmas, this Advent, I want you to be excited about Christmas because we should be excited about Christmas because Christmas is when Jesus was born and that's something that we want to celebrate. But as you're counting down the days, don't just be frustrated that you have to wait till Christmas. Uh, Use that time to allow God to cause you to be more excited about who Jesus is and what he's done. Use that time to spend time with your families, with your brothers and sisters, with your mom and dad, with your friends, to, to get more excited about Jesus and what he's done. Ask them to, to tell you more about the Christmas story. Ask them to tell you more about how God's people were waiting for Jesus to come. Ask them to tell you about the things that they're learning as we go through Advent together as a church so that you can be filled with even more anticipation and excitement for what God did at Christmas. Uh, let's pray and then we'll get into our passage this morning. Father, we thank you that Christmas is something that we can celebrate. Jesus, that you came down and and took on flesh and walked among us, that you became like us so that you could save us from our sins. I pray that as we enter into a, a busy holiday season, that you wouldn't allow us to be distracted by or or caught up in uh, a busy schedule or um, or materialism or or anything that might rob our attention and our affection from where it should be on you i pray that you would fill us with expectation and anticipation uh, as we move closer and closer in celebration uh, of the reality that Jesus came in the incarnation. I pray that as we, we look at your word together this morning, um, that you would, would help us to understand what it means that Jesus came, how uh, Jesus, your coming, fulfilled the Old Testament promises. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So over the next four weeks, we're going to be going through our series on Advent. And our, our goal over these next four weeks is to see uh, how Jesus' coming fulfilled the Old Testament. Um, you see, the, re- the reality is, is that when we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's a, a colossal shift, right? Something is different because Jesus came. 
But that doesn't mean that the Old Testament is, you know, just kind of this thing that's over there that doesn't matter anymore. And the New Testament is now what we uh, completely focus on. The Old Testament matters because the Old Testament tells us so much about what it means for Jesus to come. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at these four passages in Matthew 1 and 2, where Matthew says that the events of Jesus' birth and the early events of his life fulfill the Old Testament. So there's these, these statements that he says, like, this happened, this took place, these things took place to fulfill, and then he quotes some Old Testament passage. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at those passages in Matthew and then looking at those passages in the Old Testament to see how Jesus' birth, Jesus' advent, fulfills the Old Testament. So today, we're looking at Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. It'll also be up on the slides behind me. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So this is is Matthew's presentation of Jesus' miraculous birth. He tells us that that Mary uh, is is pregnant, that she's a virgin. Tells us that Joseph is gonna gonna try to divorce her quietly, and then he tells us that you know this angel speaks to Joseph in a dream, so that it changes Joseph's mind, and then all these things happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes a passage from Isaiah chapter seven, verse fourteen. And so our goal this morning is to understand what Matthew is talking about when he says that these events that we've just read about happen to fulfill what Isaiah said. And in order for us to do that, we need to understand two things. First, we need to understand what Matthew is talking about, and then we need to go back to Isaiah and try to understand what Isaiah is talking about, and then we can try to put those things together. So we'll look at Matthew first this morning. In verses 18 and 19, he gives us uh, two kind of important background details that we need in order to understand what's taking place in the passage. The first detail he gives us is that Mary, Jesus' mother, was betrothed to Joseph. Betrothed is, is kind of like engagement. But it's important for us to understand that when we think about engagement, uh, our engagement is a lot different than their betrothal. In the ancient world, betrothal was a very serious, formal thing. You know, in our, in our culture, if a guy wants to get engaged to a girl, uh, he, he goes out, he, he buys a ring, he asks the girl's dad, and then he kind of comes up with an elaborate, romantic plan to pop the question. He asks her to marry him. In this culture, uh, 
there was a like almost contractual agreement. There was a, a formal meeting with witnesses from the village. The parents kind of set this up for the bride and the groom, and they entered into this contract before their village. And so it was a big formal deal. And the only way to break this was through death or divorce. And, and we can see this by the fact that uh, in verse 19, Joseph has called her husband already. Because when you were betrothed, it was like you were already married. You just weren't living together yet. And so it's it's this big, serious arrangement. And that's what makes the second detail such a big deal. The second detail is that Mary shows up pregnant. Now, Matthew tells us that Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. right? So we, we get that detail. The reader knows what's going on, but Joseph doesn't. Joseph you know, just finds out all of a sudden this girl that he's betrothed to, this girl that he hasn't yet had relations with, is pregnant. And in Luke's gospel, we find out that Mary went to visit with Zachariah and Elizabeth, her family, for about three months. So at this point of the story, Mary is probably three to four months pregnant. She shows up, she's pregnant, Joseph finds out, and Joseph takes action based on the information he has. The information he has is she's pregnant, and it's not my baby, so I'm going to call this thing off. And Matthew says that Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What this means, when it says he's a just man, it means that Joseph tried to live his life according to the law of Moses. During this time, the law was understood in such a way that if if a woman, even in a betrothal situation, committed adultery, the man was, was required, was expected to divorce her. And so Joseph is expected, under their understanding of the law, to divorce Mary because she's pregnant and it's not his baby. The way that that typically happened was they got a whole bunch of people together in the village and they humiliated the woman as the divorce took place. But Joseph here says that he wants to do this uh, quietly. He doesn't want to put her to shame. And so he's trying to live his life according to the law, but he's trying to do it in a way that's compassionate. And that's what Matthew is trying to explain to us here about Joseph. So Joseph and Mary are betrothed. Mary shows up pregnant. Joseph decides to divorce her, and he's made his decision, and now he goes to sleep. And in verse 20, an angel appears to him and gives him more information. He says, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What we need to see here, and what the angel tells Joseph, is what he tells him about Jesus' name. He tells him that he should call the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The reason why that's important is because what the name Jesus means. The name Jesus, in English, is just an attempt to bring over it into English, the name that Jesus is given in Greek in the New Testament. The name he's given in Greek in the New Testament is Iesus. And that is just an attempt to bring over into Greek the Hebrew name in the Old Testament, which is Yehoshua or, or, or Joshua. And that name means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. It means that God saves. And so Jesus is given a name, God saves. But notice why he's supposed to have that name. You shall call his name Jesus for or, or because he 
will save his people from their sins. So call him God saves. Why call him God saves? Because he will save his people from their sins. It's not, it's not Yahweh that's doing the saving anymore. It's not God that's doing the saving anymore. It's Jesus who's doing the saving anymore. Obviously, we know that that's because Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. He's come to save his people from their sins. That's why he's given this name. And if that's not enough, he continues. Matthew tells us, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in these two names that Matthew tells us Jesus is given, we're getting more information about who this son is that's going to be born. He's going to be born in such a way that he's going to save his people from their sins, and he is going to be God's presence with his people. And Matthew tells us that this happened in this way to fulfill what Isaiah said. And so what we need to know now is how are these things in fulfillment of the Old Testament. But before we go there, let's let's look at the rest of the passage. Verses 24 and 25, uh, he tells us that when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel said to do. He took Mary as his wife, uh, and he named him Jesus. He says he knew her not until she had given birth to his son. So just in case, you know, we've got any questions about the virgin birth, he clears those up for us there and says that, you know, nothing happened until after she gave birth. The point at the end is that those two events, uh, Joseph marrying Mary, and Joseph naming Jesus, Jesus is him kind of legally recognizing Jesus as his adopted son. Um, but back to the question at hand, why are these events in fulfillment of the Old Testament? Uh, how is what's happening in Matthew fulfilling what Isaiah said in Isaiah 7.14? Before we go to Isaiah, I want, to, I want to talk for just a, just a bit about Old Testament prophecy because it's going to help us understand not just what's happening in this passage, but what's happening in all the passages over the next few weeks. And that's that when we think about Old Testament prophecy and its fulfillment in the New Testament, we normally think about one kind of fulfillment. We normally think about predictive fulfillment. Predictive fulfillment is there's a prediction in the Old Testament and then that comes true in the New Testament. So there's, there's one thing that's said in the Old Testament, and then there's one way it's fulfilled in the New Testament. That's, that's normally what we think about when we think about the fact that, you know, something is fulfilled. So for example, in, in 2 Samuel 7 and in Isaiah 11, uh, the Old Testament tells us that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. So there's these predictions in the Old Testament. The Messiah is going to be a descendant of David, And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus is born, and we see this in Matthew 1, we see it in, in Luke 4. Jesus is born, and he's a descendant of David. So there's this point in the Old Testament, and then it's fulfilled in the New Testament. And that is one of the ways that Old Testament prophecy gets fulfilled in the New Testament. The problem is, is that's what we kind of exclusively think about when we think about fulfillment. And the reality is that often it works another way, and this is what's called typological fulfillment. And that's a, a fancy phrase that just means that instead of the, old, the New Testament author picking up one thing in the Old Testament, he picks up a whole pattern of events and says these things point to Jesus. 
These things find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. These things find their ultimate fulfillment in what happens in the New Testament. So instead of going back and getting one thing, they go back and they get a whole passage and say this whole thing points to what we see happening in Jesus. And so think about it this way. Uh, when you When you fish, if you fish with a pole and a hook, you throw that hook in the water and you catch one fish. You pull that one fish out of the water. That's like predictive fulfillment. But if instead you took a giant net and you threw that giant net out in the water and you scooped up a whole mess of fish and put it in, that's like typological fulfillment. They're looking at a passage or a pattern of events or an institution or a group of people and they're saying these things point to Jesus. And so as we look at Isaiah, we're going to see this that fulfillment sometimes works in this way. So go ahead and flip over to Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit on the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being the people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So first, in this passage, Isaiah tells us when these things are happening. He says they're happening uh, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So it's happening when Ahaz was king. And through verse 6, we, we find out what's taking place politically in this context. There are these two guys, Rezin and Pekah, 
uh, the king of Syria and the king of the northern kingdom of Israel have come down to wage war against Judah. They're, they're going to wage war against Judah because they want to take Ahaz down and put a, a puppet king in place who will do whatever they want him to do. And because of this, Ahaz and the people of Judah are, are freaked out. They're worried about what's going to happen. And so God comes to tell them through Isaiah, it's, it's not going to happen. These two kings are going to fail. And he tells him in verse 11 to ask for a sign. He's saying, you know, ask God to give you a sign to prove to you that his word will stand. Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign, not not out of faith, but out of unbelief. And so God himself gives him a sign in verse 14. And the sign that he gives him is the sign of Emmanuel, which is what Matthew quotes in his gospel. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So sometimes we hear this passage and we think Isaiah, in Isaiah 7.14, is prophesying that, you know, Jesus is going to be born, you know, hundreds of years later of a virgin, and they're going to call his name Manuel. And that's, that's all Isaiah is talking about in 714. But that's not all that Isaiah is talking about in 714. And we see more if we keep reading. It says, he, that's this child that's going to be born, this Emmanuel, this sign, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for, verse 16, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So God is going to give Ahaz a sign, and the sign that he's going to give him is this baby is going to be born in the near future, and before this baby is old enough to know good and evil, these two kings who are opposing him are going to be taken out. So this is the sign that Ahaz gets that God is going to keep his promise and deliver his people from their enemies. And it's placed firmly within their time period. See this if we keep reading in chapter 8. Verses 8, 3, and 4, Isaiah says this, And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Can Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So Isaiah has a son in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, and he seems to connect that son's birth with the promise that God gave him in chapter 7. He says that before this son is, is old enough to know how to cry, my father, my mother, these two kings are going to be taken out. So there's a connection being made between these two births. The point is that in Isaiah 7 and 8, there, there's more happening than just kind of this simple prediction with a simple fulfillment in the New Testament. There's, there's a big pattern of events that Matthew is saying these events are fulfilled in the New Testament. He's making a connection that, that goes beyond just verse 14. I think that what's happening here is that Matthew is picking up on the similarities between uh, Ahaz's time and Isaiah's time and Jesus' time. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 7, God's people were living uh, under the threat of a foreign power, right? They were, they were facing an invasion. They were ruled by a faithless king. In Jesus' time, God's people were, were conquered by a foreign power. And their king wasn't just faithless. He wasn't even a descendant of David and Abraham. In uh, Isaiah's time, they're given this promise 
that this child is going to be born that's going to represent God's presence with his people. In Jesus' time, there's a child that's born that doesn't just represent, doesn't just symbolize God's presence with his people, but actually is God taking on flesh and coming down to dwell among his people. In Isaiah's day, God's people are are given the birth of this child to say, God is going to save you from your enemies. In Jesus, he is God actually saving his people from their enemies. The point is that in Isaiah, God's people are given this sign. But when Jesus is born, the way Jesus fulfills that sign is by, by not just being the sign, by being God actually doing the things that he said he was going to do for God's people in Isaiah's time. He comes to be himself among his people. He comes to save them from their enemies. He fulfills this passage to its greatest and fullest extent possible. He takes all of these things to their fullest expression in Jesus. Jesus is God keeping all of his promises. When we think about how the Old Testament points to and look forward to the New Testament, when we think about how God's people in the Old Testament were were waiting for God to keep his promises, we need to remember that when Jesus comes, right, he's not just checking boxes on a list of predictions. He is fulfilling everything that God promised to his people in the Old Testament in the greatest and most significant way possible. Right? There is, is nothing that's not fulfilled in him. There are no promises that don't find their yes in him. And so our, our appreciation for the Old Testament, our, our anticipation and expectation for the way in which God is going to keep his promises in Jesus shouldn't be limited to just you know one verse in the Old Testament matching one verse in the New Testament. We should look at the Old Testament and look to see Jesus everywhere keeping God's promises to his people. In Isaiah 7, there's not just this random promise that a virgin is going to conceive and and a child's going to be born. There is this pattern of events that God is going to save his people from their enemies, that God is going to be present with his people, that for them was just symbolized in the birth of a child, but for us actually finds its reality in Jesus. When Jesus is born, God is present with his people. When Jesus is born through his life, death, and resurrection, he conquers all of our enemies. And so as we celebrate Advent together over the next month, I would encourage you to spend time with your family reading Scripture together, looking for ways in which Jesus is is in the Old Testament, looking for ways in which God keeps his promises to us in Christ in a way that you didn't know before, in a way that you didn't understand before. Look for ways for God to to enlarge your understanding of what Christ has done uh, in the incarnation. There's this quote by by J.I. Packer. The supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of the resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. What Packer is saying is that the, the, the craziest part about Christianity is not that God could die uh, on the cross. 
It's not that Jesus rose from the dead on Easter. The craziest part about Christianity is that Jesus came down and took on flesh and became like us. This is the, the opposite of the temptation that Adam and Eve give into in the garden. Right? They, they fall into sin because they want to become like God. But in the incarnation, he becomes like us. He takes on flesh. He is born as a human being so that he can be God's presence with his people, so that he can save us from our sins. And so as we take the Lord's Supper today as a church, as we celebrate the reality of the incarnation together as a church, uh, spend some time thinking about how insane it is that God became a human being, that, that the Creator took on part of his creation so that he be, could become like us, so that he could made, be made like us in every way, yet without sin, so that he could save us from our sins. And in doing that, he fulfills all the promises of God to his people in the Old Testament, all of his promises to us. All of his promises find their yes in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are not just a sign or a symbol, but that you really came, that you were really born of a virgin, and that you really took on flesh, and you really walked among us, and you really save your people from their sins. That you don't just point to a time when we'll be saved from our enemies, but that you represent the reality that we have been saved from our enemies. Jesus, I pray now that as we move in the service to, to celebrate your death on our behalf, that you would send your spirit to stir our affections for the realities not just of the cross and the resurrection, but also of the incarnation. That you became like us to save us. I pray that as we continue in worship and as we continue in this Advent season, that you would fill us with anticipation and expectation for seeing and learning new ways in which you represent the salvation that's been promised for so long. 